1: Hello and welcome again to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne, and this is an independent England of football supporters podcast. Hope I find you well. I hope you enjoyed the most recent episode, the one where I spoke with John Driscoll about his most recent book, which is entitled "Get It Kicked." Good book, that one. Uh, once again. We're talking books in this episode. Uh, all the details on that come in your way very shortly. Stay tuned. Now, also that last episode, I mentioned about the England Supporters Travel Club membership. Well, since then, the announcement has been made. This has now been open to renew or join. Um, this is as of Tuesday, the 24th of January. This membership period is running until Sunday the 14th of July 2024. I know, it seems a long way away at the moment, doesn't it? Uh, But that particular day is the last day of Euro 2024. It's the day of the final. Now, the cost for renewing for existing members is £55 for adults and £15 for juniors. Though I'm not quite sure, actually, what the cutoff for juniors is. Is it 16? 18? I'm not 100% sure. You'll need to uh, double-check on that one. But worth noting that this is the same price as last time, which is pretty good, obviously, at this time. Current state we're in. Uh, any savings are good. But to renew at this price, you do have to do it by the 21st of July of this year, which I, <laughs> I think is a given. Uh, If you're going to renew, then you're going to be doing it pretty soon, aren't you? Um, Now, if you are applying for the first time, though, cost is £75 for adults and £30 for juniors, which, in my opinion, is still good value. Uh, £75 is is what I think we had to pay pre-pandemic, I believe. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it was around that price. Uh, But for more information, you will need to uh, navigate the FA.com website. Search the England tab, then search England Supporters Travel Club. All the details will be listed there. And also, if that wasn't enough excitement, news on Italy away in March of sorts. Uh, Registration of interest to travel club members is to be made between the 26th of January to the 16th of February and as yet there is no news on any allocation. Uh, It would appear the Italians are making us wait. Once again keep tabs on that England website for those details or I'll mention it as soon as I no, as soon as I've found it out myself, and of course, coming with a new membership period uh is the subject of caps loyalty points for following the uh, the team home and away and this is only for the senior men because there is no lionesses equivalent travel club um the The caps only apply to the the senior men's games you will find that the the caps that have accrued over the last membership period and and those before will decrease um, going forward. I think I was on 44, I believe. Um, Looking at it now, I think I'm down to about 22. Um, So don't be alarmed if your caps do go down, um, but do make sure that all of your caps have been accounted for. Make sure of that. Anyway, so if you do renew, hope to see you on the road very soon in some far flung places of Europe. Always good fun following England. Now, I wouldn't normally dedicate an episode to an England defeat, but on the very odd occasion, a scoreline sends shockwaves around the world and shakes a nation to its core, leaving them to find that reset button. Think Brazil in 1950, 2014 two, uh, losing to both Uruguay and Germany, respectively. North Korea beating Italy in sixty six, Cameroon beating Argentina in nineteen ninety. More recently, I guess, Senegal beating France in 2002. I guess also ourselves in 1950, losing to the States. But there's another defeat we're going to look at here. Uh, It is my pleasure to welcome to the Three Lions podcast, Matt Clough, author of the book, The Match of the Century, England, Hungary and the Game that Changed Football Forever.
0: Hello, Matt. Hi, Russell. Thanks very much for having me.
1: Now welcome along welcome along you're a, a published author
0: I am yes yeah, so this is my it's my second book my uh, my first book was a biography of Nat Lofthouse who I'm sure a lot of your listeners will be familiar with you know former former England joint record goal scorer with Tom Finney Bolton legends and uh, yeah that that came out in 2019 uh, was nominated for the telegraph sports book awards. And so this is my, my first, I suppose it is in a way it's kind of a biography of an event rather than a biography of a person. But yeah, it's a it's a slightly different take on a on the same era, obviously, because 1950s was also Nat Lost era, but he yeah. didn't play in this match crucially. Uh, yeah, as would like to remind a lot of his teammates. <laughs> well I'm
1: sure I'm sure we'll we'll get on to that. Maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you've written for the Guardian and the and the Independent. I think.
0: Sure. So I'm I'm basically a sort of a I guess you'd say a self trained writer. I don't have a background in it. I'm not a journalist. I um, I've always loved football, as I've alluded to. I'm, I'm a Bolton fan, unfortunately, and an England fan, of course. And yeah, I've basically for the last about ten years have been been freelancing in various different guises for various different places. Like say, I've done some work for the Guardian, done some work for the Athletic, and then yeah, I I can't remember when I actually started the uh, the lofty odyssey, as in the loft house odyssey, I should say. That. I I wanted to work on something that was a bit more permanent and a bit more, obviously, quite a lot more long-form than a a newspaper article. Because, uh, as I'm I'm sure you can appreciate, writing about football, um, particularly when I was doing it, not so much these days with with places like The Athletic that are very much dedicated to long-form journalism. But when when I started really freelancing probably seven or eight years ago, a lot of places it was very much get as many clicks as you can, uh, sort of traffic is king. And it, it generally meant that there was a focus on probably quantity over quality a little bit. And that's not to, to knock any writers or any publications out there, but it, it sort of drove me towards doing something with a bit more, like I say, a bit bit longer form, something that I could really spend, you know, in, in the case of both books, it was, it was years of research and then probably about a year and a half of, of writing and then another half a year to a year of editing after that before the books came out. So both both pretty serious undertakings. Um, I'm sure more experienced writers are able to uh, to put books out uh, at a faster rate than that. But yeah, like I say, I, I'm, I, I, it's not my full time job. I do it kind of around other commitments. So it's 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 just something that I've. Um, I've developed as it's more of a hobby rather than a yeah. profession, and yeah. um, hopefully that that passion rather than doing it for necessarily kind of financial reasons shines through in both books. Yeah, uh, that's not for me to say.
1: So the book obviously you say is the same time as Nat Loft House and and that sort of era, and seeing you on screen, um, I'm I'm assuming you're fairly similar age to me, and and wouldn't have been around at the time of the game, so. At what point did you think, right? I'm going to write about this particular game.
0: So obviously, off the back of the first book, I'd, I'd done a lot of research around the era, and and one thing I had kind of found as I was doing it, as I, I one one aspect I was really interested in was not just trying to talk about the football and say, you know, who had Arsenal or Preston were top of the league at this point, that kind of thing. I wanted to give a real sense of what. Nat's life was like and what all footballers' lives were like at the time. So what it was like living in Britain in the sort of post immediate post-war era. And as I was doing that, I found that 1953 was a sort of ridiculously eventful year. I, I say in the book, I think you can you can stake a claim for it being the most eventful. Uh, non wartime year of the 20th century um, because so much happens. You've got the sort of you know the structure of DNA is discovered, the polio vaccine is created, the first colour TV comes out. Yeah, then um, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation, mm. uh, Everest is summited, the Cold War ends, Stalin dies, the USSR detonate a hydrogen bomb. So my original, very 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 ambitious plan was. I could do a book on 1953 as a whole, right. um, but quite quickly realised it, <laughs> unless my <laughs> publishers were willing to extend my word count by another sort of probably one to two million words, yeah. it wasn't going to happen. So I, I ended up coming back to football, as, as I always do, as we all do in, yeah. in everyday life. And obviously the match of the century also happens in 1953. So my idea was to tell the story of this match but also kind of illuminate to the reader what was happening around the time and and what made the match so eventful and so important. Because as well as all of the the events I just mentioned, uh, it's obviously the height of the the Cold War. There's there's, kids going to school and being told how to shelter from from nuclear blasts and that kind of thing. You've got the West versus East aspect, the, the capitalism versus communism democracy versus totalitarianism obviously in the teams themselves Hungary were really the upstarts and the, you know they're the students whereas England were very much the the old school the teachers they were still considered by many including very much themselves to be the the kings of football and here come Hungary as the kind of upstart so I thought that there's just there's so many angles to come at it, there's so much to unpack. And there have been some, some fantastic books recently um, come out, on particularly on Hungarian football, that obviously talk about the match in, in some detail because it is, you know, you can make a case for it being that this sort of the high point of, of Hungarian football. But what I wanted to look at was, A, the sort of everything that goes into the match from both sides, but also with a sort of renewed focus on the England side because I, I don't think that had been covered in quite as much detail. I think a lot of the, the stuff around the match and, and rightfully so really because it is it's Hungary's victory mm. and it, it very much focused on Hungary, whereas I wanted to kind of cover what was also going on with England at the time and, and the impact it had on England and and why England kind of found that themselves in that position in the first place getting humiliated. At Wembley, by this team that, you know, basically the, the English sort of uh, perception of before they arrived was oh, yeah, we, we've heard about these foreign teams coming over here. And, you know, we, we're always told they're the, the new big thing, and, and yet it's never transpired. So, England obviously had this, their famous record of never having been beaten by continental opposition uh, at home. Yeah. And this this record that had been kind of little caveats had been added in because they'd lost to the Republic of Ireland in 1948. And so the record had been, before that, it had been, we'd never lost to a foreign side. And then it was obviously, oh, we'd never lost to a side from beyond the British Isles, or we'd never technically lost at home because that match was, Ever- was at Everton, at Park. So um, yeah, that, that was a, another aspect that I didn't feel had been, covered, certainly not alongside the Hungarians. So I wanted to kind of bring it all together and, and explain, hopefully, what was going on around the match and just just why it mattered so much beyond, obviously, being an incredible result and an incredible scoreline that sort of stung the footballing world. Yeah. Well, let's go back
1: to the 25th of November, 1953. It was Wembley Stadium, England versus Hungary. It was also supposedly the first 100,000 capacity at Wembley which I wasn't aware of at the time Um, and you've sort of mentioned a lot of it there but the the blurb on the back of the book I think encapsulates it all it's west versus east capitalism versus communism the masters versus the students the old guard versus the upstarts the British empire versus a satellite of the Soviet Union tactical stagnation versus innovation Stanley Matthews Billy Wright and Alf Ramsey versus Ferenc Puskas, Sandor Kosic, and Nandor Higeti. It all rested on the outcome of England versus Hungary. All that remained for them to do was play, uh, which I think is a great sort of introduction <laughs> to it all. I mean, the mighty Magyars, as Hungary were known as, they were Olympic
0: champions at the time, weren't they? They were, and they were also on this, this incredible unbeaten run. They've not lost a match since 1950. Um, and they they, you know some huge results in that time a few kind of real cricket scores against a few of the sort of other Eastern European teams they just absolutely steamrolled um, a few big wins against Austria who were there obviously you know very close yeah. neighbours big rivals kind of similar to sort of England and Scotland in, in terms of relationship very similar but also would would never want to actually admit that yeah um, and then yeah they'd also, they'd also won there was a sort of it, it, the, the name has been changed I don't know how many times but basically a competition a round-robin competition over the course of several years between Italy and then several of what we now call Eastern European teams so Austria, Czechoslovakia, Hungary oh, yeah. and they'd won that in 1952 they they needed to beat Italy in Rome in their last match and they went, went into Rome won 3-0 and just yeah kind of And obviously at the time, Italy were an extremely strong team, very, very known for their sort of tactical now. So for this team to to waltz in there and just just dismantle them was was unprecedented. So yeah, Hungary, they've won the Olympics in 1952. It was actually at the Olympics that the the match in England was arranged. So England's secretary, Stanley Rouse, saw them beat uh, Sweden in in the semi-final. I believe it was 5-1. So 1953 was the FA's 90th anniversary. So they did kind of plan this, partly planned, part of it was just serendipity. They had a basically a really packed schedule of matches for England in 1953 to celebrate this anniversary, uh, including a match against a rest of the world team, a kind of all-stars team. And um, yeah, Stanley Rouse saw Hungary just absolutely, you know, waltzing through the Olympic competition, which at the time was, was you know, a much bigger deal than it is today, you know, it was, it was more full teams and that kind of thing. And yeah, Rouse, in a moment of uh hubris that I imagine he came to regret quite significantly, <laughs> saw Hungary winning all these matches and thought, Oh, it'd be a really great idea if, if we played them. He, yeah, he's an interesting character, Rouse. He, he is, he did some. Unfortunately, he, he eventually became president of FIFA. Yeah. He, was, he was very uh, supporting of the apartheid regime in South Africa, which obviously was not a good thing to be at all. But at the time, it's it's it seems surprising to say given given his later stance on South Africa. But he he was very much a modernizer. And he he lobbied for England to have a manager, which I know again by modern standards sounds hilarious that we didn't have a manager. Yeah. a lot of other teams did. But um he, he was very much all about trying to at least drag England towards some semblance of modernity. But even he suffered from some of the kind of old hang-ups that, you know, particularly Englishmen at the time had, you can tie it into sort of the British Empire. And at the with, at the time, the British Empire was in, in a sort of state of collapse and disrepair, but it was very much sort of kind of a lot of Englishmen, a lot of a lot of British people still sort of clinging on to that idea by the fingernails. And I think he he saw Hungary as this kind of potential huge scalp that could really cap off England's England's 1953, this this 90th anniversary of the FA by beating this team that everyone was going crazy about and sort of saying with the with the new kings of football. And yeah, safe to say it didn't quite work out that that smoothly.
1: No. Well I mean the past England had played Hungary on five occasions. They'd, they'd won four of them, lost one, scored 26 goals in the process. So you, you could imagine that they were fairly confident going into the game, but they were very quickly, well, proved proved wrong in literally the opening minute of the game.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think it's 45 seconds. Wow. Um, so you mentioned earlier that the sort of tactical stagnation versus innovation. So this was another another um, sort of dichotomy at play in the match, which was basically England had, were, were using a system known as the WM, which had, had been devised by Herbert Chapman, Arsenal manager. Um, by By 1953, it, was, it had been sort of pretty common across England and by extension, because most countries kind of aped the English style. It had, had been basically in play for about 20 years
1: I think as well. Just to for those that maybe don't understand the the WM setup, if you were to imagine a, it's a W on top and an M beneath it. I think, isn't it? And yes. where where the points join up would be the player's position. There's ten ten yeah. points, I believe. So if you were to visualize exactly. a W capital W on top of a capital M on top of a, a football pitch, you'd, you'd sort of visualize the uh, the positions of people. But it's it's one for people to. Uh, Go and take a look at to understand more.
0: Yeah, sorry, that's my fault for, nice. you know, I, I I watch all of the, you know, watching the Premier League these days and I do wonder why why uh, Guardiola bothers with his formations. So <laughs> you just go back, keep it simple with the double Yeah, you, yeah you've got, <laughs> basically, you've got one centre-back, two sort of full-backs, kind of, basically a back three. Then you've got two effective, what they used to call half-backs, better are effectively sort of defensive midfielders. And then the, the sort of the W, as 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 you've rightly put it, there is it's more of a it's kind of a flatter W, if that makes sense. You've you've effectively got two kind of attacking midfielders, sort of two tens, and then you've got two wingers, which are effectively level with the centre forward. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so th- this this style had been in, in in vogue in England. The attitude was very much we invented football and we invented this formation, therefore. You know, that, that, that's all that said and done. Yeah. And what Hungary had done was basically started to think outside the box. And the phrase I'm sure a lot of listeners will be familiar with is this deep-lying centre-forward. So effectively what Hungary did was they realised that a lot of teams, and in particular England, were so rigid in the WM and stuck to it so dogmatically that all they needed to do was make the, the slightest tweak to it. And the opposition would effectively fall apart because suddenly the center half wouldn't have the centre forward where he was expecting to, to mark him effectively. So all that Hungary did was told their, their centre forward Nando Haidaguti to drop deep, basically, rather than rather than just stand next to the center half for 90 minutes, try and win headers and you know be the focal point of the attack. He could drop deep and basically. As soon as they did that, it completely derailed their opponents, and particularly England. And it's, again, by modern standards, it sounds laughably simplistic. But really, I think that the thing to the case to make for the match of the century is that what Hungary did with tactics it was basically it wasn't even thinking outside the box it was basically thinking the unthinkable because tactics in those days were it wasn't even a, a consideration when you talked about how are you going to win a match mm. you know if you if you read match reports from the sort of 1930s the 1940s or even the early 1950s there's never a mention of oh this team you know they they Overloaded the right hand side, or something like that, or that defensive midfielder really, you know, did a number on their number ten. It just, it just wasn't a consideration at all. So for Hungary to to come in, and and basically wield tactics as a weapon, it was almost like a sort of uh, a philosophical sort of. I, 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 it's it's very difficult to put into words. I hope I had done somewhere in the foot, but <laughs> it, 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 it was just something that England had never even counted. On, and it, it basically meant that Hungary had the match won before they'd even stepped on the pitch. It, it was like, uh, if if you consider tactics to be like a chess match, it was a little bit like England walked up to their board and realised, you know, they were already in check and they didn't have any, they only had a couple of pawns to defend the king. and. Hungary just held all the cards, had all the pieces, and there was nothing they could do. There was, you know, there was there was, there was some criticism of at, at England at half-time and, and there was a lot of finger-pointing. Stanley Matthews blamed uh, England's manager, Walter Winterbottom, for not, you know, devising a plan over the first 45 minutes and then relaying it to the team at, at half-time of how to, how to basically stymie the Hungarians and how to counteract them. But you basically asking all of the English players and uh, Walter Winterbottom, as good a coach as he was, to basically undo everything they'd ever learned about football in 45 minutes and come up with something completely new. It was, um, yeah, and needless to say, they weren't able to counteract them. Uh, Uh, It didn't didn't go very well for England from there on in.
1: England were 4-2 down. At half time, said so there was the, the goal in the in the first minute. Jackie Sewell scored to equalise after 13 minutes. Hidaguti scored uh, another one. Uh, Puskas got two in what a space of three four minutes, uh, and then Stan Mortensen just before half time made it four two. But by then, like as you say, the the damage had already been done. Um, not just in that game, but for the. For for years to come after, really, for for the English game, English national team.
0: Yeah, I, and I think what you'd expect to have seen from uh, from a defeat like this, you know, it 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 really shattered all of the myths of English football. You mentioned that at the very start, England had had obviously lost to uh, the USA in Brazil in the nineteen fifty World Cup. And as, again, I'm sure a lot of your listeners will remember this, the uh, the build up to the the recent World Cup match with USA because that was mentioned quite frequently, and that should have been a moment when the FA turned around and said, "What's just happened here?" But there was very much, it was a very insular organisation, the FA. So, as I mentioned, it the the fact that England had a manager at this point was was a minor miracle and was a, a relatively new innovation. However. Was Winter Boston, the manager? Didn't actually get to to pick the team. That was done by a selection committee, which was constructed entirely of of chairmen and members of the FA. And I think fundamentally, those men in the FA realised that in order to truly reform the team, it would require basically it would it would basically be the the turkey's face for Christmas. It would be them saying. We're clearly out of our depth here. We clearly don't deserve these positions anymore. We clearly can't rely on the fact that England or England, that we're we're going to have players who are nine times out of ten are better than their opposite number when we play international matches. And we can just rely on that to win. So really, unfortunately, 1953 was was yet another uh, result which should have triggered this huge upheaval in English football, but didn't. And actually, the next year, there was a a return match before the 1954 World Cup in Budapest, which, I mean, that, that was... it. What is really marked about that match is that you can... The tone in the press before the match, because very much before the match of the century in 1953, there was a very much... A, a triumphalist sense in the press. I think that there were there were some dissenting voices, but there was still a lot of, oh, Hungary are good, but we'll find a way. We always yeah. do. But before the Budapest match, there was very much a, this is going to be an absolute massacre, and hopefully it won't be too <laughs> demoralising, uh, as I think <laughs> you're about to say. Didn't, again, didn't work out as as the FA had hoped there because it ended seven one to Hungary, and yeah, that was the final match before the nineteen fifty four World Cup. So exactly the sort of preparation you you need really. But um, <laughs> puts last year's nation league defeat uh, into a, a bit of a perspective, really.
1: Yeah, and and to date that re- that remains England's biggest defeat, and hopefully a, a result that we won't ever see again. <laughs> but just to go back to the uh, the match. Just to round it off, that um, in the second half, Bosic is that how you pronounce it? Scored, yeah, Joseph Bosic. Yeah, uh, Hidiguti got another one, and then Alf Ramsey um, of all people um, scored. And I know that he took quite a lot of um, influence, maybe is maybe the right word, maybe not. But but from that game, going into his managerial career, um, having sort of looked into that in the past as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, so this was this marked the end of Ramsey's international career. This was the last time he ever played for England. But he he was a really interesting character in that he was never a particularly talented footballer, but what he did have was a was unbelievable reading of the game. And being a defender in those days, if you couldn't physically kind of you know, flatten whoever you were up against or, you know, send Stanley Matthews five rows into the stands every time he tried to take the ball past you, you needed to have a really, really good sense of anticipation and reading the match. And you're absolutely right. Ramsey was, of all of the England brains involved and all of the... the, the impact that the game had or didn't have, as is the case of the FA, Ramsey was the one who really took something away and obviously went on to have this managerial career where he was really the trailblazer in England for, think, again, thinking outside the box tactically. Because although the FA were very slow to react, the match in the century did at least impress upon England players, England fans, England press that tactics were now a thing. You had to consider that they, they were another part of the puzzle and often were the, the most important part of the puzzle. So, yeah, Ramsey took a huge influence in this. When he became England manager, one of his conditions, one of his the things that he insisted on in order to become manager was that he had full control of the team because he took over from Winterbottom and Winterbottom never ceded control from the selection committee. Yeah. And obviously, as we all know, Ramsey took control of the team, he picked his players, he you know, introduced formations which at the, you know, when when they didn't get results, he was absolutely hounded in the press and they were saying, Why have you changed it? Why have you, you know, we, we've got the, the the wonderful WM, which has only ever failed us on several occasions. But <laughs> why 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 would you change this? Why do you think you know best? And as nineteen sixty six proved, it turns out he did know best.
1: Yeah. There was one other thing, and I've I've forgotten the guy's name. Wasn't there a guy who had left England, gone to Hungary? Was he a coach?
0: Yeah, Jimmy Hogan.
1: Jimmy Hogan. He's quite important to the the story as well, isn't he? Or, Or got a certain part to play.
0: He is. So so. Jimmy Hogan, I believe Jonathan Wilson, who's, who's another, is an excellent writer. And I'm not going to put myself in the same league as him. He's, he's very much the, the godfather of football tactical writing and has also written several fantastic uh, books on football history. He he has credited Jimmy Hogan as being potentially the most influential coach in in football history. Um, he, he was a player in the early uh, 1900s. Sorry, I, no, no, 1900s. And um, yeah, play, played, had a sort of a decent career. Um, but then when he was playing for Bolton, they had a tour abroad. I think it was in, in Holland. And the you know the English team in uh, Bolton were, you know, comfortable winners on all of the tour games. And he felt that the, the, the players they were up against had a lot of raw ability, but... That you know they they didn't have the application, they didn't have the, the the means and the tactical understanding and the training methods to be apply those those abilities and that that kind of raw potential and and make some like you know be able to compete with the likes of England and the other British teams. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he he then when he retired went on this incredible tour of of Europe effectively spreading the gospel of football everywhere he went. And so he, um, like I say, he he spent some time in the Netherlands. He he was very noted for his time in Austria, where he he worked with the national team and was basically, you know, fated as this, this um, almost the godfather of of Austrian football. And obviously Austria in the 1930s alongside Italy were one of the the sort of real superpowers in, in Europe. And he had a similar impact in Hungary he, he managed various various teams there were a couple of other British coaches as well there was um, a Scottish coach called uh, Andrew Robertson who who was involved with both club teams and the national side at various points as was Hogan and they really laid the groundwork and the foundation for Hungary success you know sort of 30 or 40 years later and they did this by again that Hungary knew of football they were they were very much you know in love with the game they were passionate about it but the idea of training and tactics and the the kind of the things that in the early you know decades of international football made made British teams particularly such a force were this it was the preparation it was you know their enthusiasm can only take you so far and Hogan very much instilled this you know understanding in, in every country he went, including uh, in Hungary. And what was interesting about Hogan was that when he, he despite his incredible career of, you know, travelling around and achieving so much, he, whenever he returned to England and tried to get a job in, in the football league system, the, the door was always slammed in his face because he, he didn't know the right people and he was too willing to basically, he, he wasn't a yes man by any, by any stretch of the imagination. He was too willing to say you're doing this wrong, I, I know the, the way that this should be done, and a lot of chairmen at the time were just thinking, Well, is this going to get me instant results? No, is this potentially going to cost me money by this guy demanding that we, we sign a bunch of new players? Yes, I, I'm not interested. And, and actually, in the 1950s, he ended up as a youth team coach for Aston Villa, and that it was under that capacity that he went. To Wembley to watch the match of the century, but then when the Hungarians got wind that that the, you know, the famous Jimmy Hogan was there, obviously out in the stands, you know the English the English fans had were stood next to him and had no idea who he was. But as soon as the Hungarians got wind that he was there, they they got him down to the dressing room and were were telling him that all of these things about you know how he was. I think the, the quote from uh, Gustav uh, Seves, the uh, Hungarian coach, was that you know when when they write the story of Hungarian football, it will be Jimmy Hogan's name that is, is written in gold in lights because he was an absolute legend. It was you know it's, it's it would be like if if he'd, um, if England had won abroad in, in the nineties. And they then heard that Alf Ramsey was there watching them, that kind of thing, but yeah. p- potentially even more so because, yeah, H- Hogan, it's, it's, it's impossible to understate just what an impact he had on, on the country's football. And like I said, but the fact that the, the players and all the coaches knew who he was, even though he'd probably not been in Hungary for at least 20 years by that point, it was uh, that sort of shows you what an impact he had.
1: Yeah. Well, you mentioned the the follow-up game that was played in in Budapest, where England lost 7-1. But the the Hungarian team of the time and, and Hungarian football began to diminish shortly afterwards, really, didn't it?
0: Yeah, and it's, it's a really sad story because, so obviously they go into the 1954 World Cup as huge favourites. Yeah. They absolutely swat everyone aside. I, I believe they beat West Germany, uh, I think it's 8-3 in the group stages. Then they beat Brazil. Then they beat um, Uruguay uh, in one of the you know most the, the 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 Brazil matches is marred because it just descends into violence. The late, the later matches are, are slightly better, but then they end up playing West Germany again in the uh, in the final. And obviously, having having won by such a huge margin in the group stages, they feel very confident. But as it transpires, things don't work out so well. They they go two nil up in about space of about nine minutes, but Germany are playing a a pretty much a completely different team. Um, so when they first played Hungary in the group, they said, well, at the time it was thought that the Hungarian uh, sorry the German coach. Was effectively changing his team to protect his best players from being humiliated. He knew they were going to lose, right. and so didn't want to expose them to this huge loss. Basically, but that's that's kind of been disputed. And obviously, they went on to win the final. And it's now for was he actually was it a kind of rope-a-dope sort of situation where he thought we'll play our second team, we'll lose, we'll still get through the group, and then if we do, if we get far enough. We'll play hungry again and then I'll we'll see what we're really made of. And there's this there's, there's there's plenty of other uh, conjecture around the final. So Hungary had an equalizer uh, which would well a, a goal which would have made it 3 all um ruled out for offside in, in pretty much the last kick of the game and it's it's impossible to tell from the footage we have whether it is offside but I believe um I can't remember which way around it is but there are there's certainly a Welsh official and an English official involved in the final. Oh, right. And so uh Hungary makes some, I think Pushkast says it's it's strange how we keep ending up with these English officials or British officials and basically saying if <laughs> that that was revenge for, for the match of the century there. There's also um some interesting suggestions that the German players were actually all under the influence of performance-enhancing drugs, and we're all really? kind of being injected with with various uh, substances at halftime. And we're all sort of, rather than rather than celebrating after the final whistle, we're all kind of collapsed and throwing up because of whatever had been put into their systems. But yeah, that 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 is a that's a it's still a, a huge, I guess you say albatross around Hungarian football's net. The fact that they had this team. They'd been unbeaten for four years and they didn't win the World Cup when, having been 2-0 up in the final and just cruising. And then, unfortunately, politics gets in the way. So in 1956, um, Hungary uh, undergoes a revolution. as an uprising against the Soviet Union. Very, very briefly, it looks like the the uprising has been a success. And there's there's a new prime minister installed and all that. And then the Soviet Union... Basically, strike back. They they decide it's it's too much of a humiliation to lose Hungary in this manner, such a in such a well publicised way on the global stage. So they strike back. They they take control of Hungary, and a lot of the players from the golden team, the the Mag- uh, magical Magyars, they they basically see it as now or never. If they're if they're ever going to escape Hungary and and the Soviet Union, they have to go now. That they they know that the likelihood of them enjoying the sort of freedoms and privileges they've had is probably going to disappear because the fact that there's been this uprising means that the the, the totalitarian control in Hungary is, is only going to get worse so a lot of the players flee a lot of the defects including Puskas and, and Sebor and a couple of others from the golden team the i think the, the hungarian under 21 team at the time is away doing a um, in a sort of a, a youth competition and basically, the entire team defects. They, they all say we're, we're not going back to Hungary. There's there's no you know there's no chance. So that Hungary they, they do go on to have some some good results in the 1960s World Cups, but obviously they they fade badly away. And it's 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 an interesting one because. On the one hand, you think, well, you know, think about teams like France and obviously Germany, which were a rising force at that point, but France hadn't really realised their potential. Portugal hadn't really realised their potential. Spain were another one who were still kind of in in their, they were a long way behind England in their sort of development at that stage, but would obviously had huge populations and, you know, real passion for football. So it's, I think it's, it's an oversimplification to say that because of, The revolution or the failed Revolution, Hungarian football, that was what killed it. And it's possible that other nations would have caught them up anyway. But then you you do look at countries such as Uruguay, who have consistently, you know, they they had a golden generation way back in the 30s and have basically never, never really lost that ability to consistently punch above their weight. And you do wonder if Hungary could have been the sort of the European answer to to a to a Uruguay to a, a smaller nation that, that consistently yeah. finds a way and unfortunately we'll never know so it's a it's a sad end to a to a tale but they they will always have the match the century and unfortunately so so will so will England
1: indeed yeah no um and, and I appreciate it's what it seventy years ago now isn't it now we're in twenty twenty three yeah yeah I mean oh, were you able to speak to to anyone or anyone secondhand to get views
0: from the time so i i when i was interviewing for lofty i, I interviewed quite a few players um including a couple of, of bolton players who who went on to play for england in the in the 50s they didn't yeah. were they, they were playing at the time but they weren't involved in the match of the century and obviously i spoke to a lot of uh people who knew Matt, who again he 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 missed out on the match to century. I, I say missed out in inverted commas there because he, I think he was quite happy to have done so in the end. But um, he, yeah, for a combination of injury and potentially because uh, the FA had seen uh, the obviously the Matthews final being played just a few months before, and I, there's a there's a sense that with their selection for the match of the century, they were trying to harness some of that kind of that Blackpool magic. So there's I think there's four Blackpool players in the England team, including Stan Watsonson playing at centre forward, which he didn't normally play for England, which is normally where Lofthouse played. So so through those interviews I was able to get a sense of you know what it was like playing and, and to, certainly the the attitudes and expectations uh, full play for England at those times. So I spoke to, to Tommy Banks and Doug Holden, who both played for England, and yeah, they they both mentioned the match of the century as as this kind of absolutely incredible moment that no one no one saw coming. You know, I think I think there was a sense that okay, maybe one day a, for- a continental team or a foreign team will will will, will come here, they'll sneak a one 0 and we'll say okay, the record, the unbeaten record's gone, but you know. Whatever, but the, the fact that Hungary just came in and from start to finish just absolutely dominated England, and you know at times felt like they were playing a different sport. They described that as a really as a shattering moment. And unfortunately for both of those players, they they came into the fold in in the late fifties after the Munich disaster, when English football was not only was it trying to find its identity again after so long of assuming it was the best, and then suddenly being you know very clearly told it wasn't, and then you know going to the 1958 World Cup, it, it felt like England had this this real makings of a, a fantastic team, regardless of, of tactics. Um they you know it was it was it was a it was really that what the the FA couldn't pass more because in the in the wake of the match of the century, and as we said, you know, that the FA were very much willfully ignorant of the fact that tactics were now they, they had to be a consideration. But England during the fifty-six and fifty-seven, did really develop a team that was almost good enough that tactics didn't matter, and that was, you know, you've got Tommy Taylor as centre forward, Duncan Edwards as the sort of powerhouse in midfield, and obviously they both lose their lives in the Munich disaster, and that that yeah. is, a, you know, a, a real shattering blow to English football. So the combination of that that sort of loss of status and then the loss of this new kind of core of young players who are, who are unbelievably talented. Made it very, very difficult for the the players I spoke to to, to really come in and, and and know what to do, and it, it took the arrival of Alf Ramsey and, and new ideas and new fresh impetus to to really revive England. Yeah, it's uh, it's all this stuff that
1: because it was so long ago, it's so important that it's documented and is down in in book form. Um, what what's the reaction been to the book?
0: it's it's been really positive it's been very i've had some some really nice comments i think what one thing i i found as i was doing the book obviously i i kind of finished writing it really about this time last year so sort of january 2022 hmm. and what one thing i i did have in mind was obviously it was england grappling with the well, sorry britain grappling with the loss of empire at the time which which really it put a lot of strain and pressure on the football team to really go out there and obviously, kind of, India had gained independence. A lot of the other territories and colonies of the English Empire were were moving away. The British Empire, I should say, and the football team basically bore a lot of the brunt of that because it was like, well, you've got to go out there and prove Britain is still Britain. Yeah, and obviously, there's there's parallels with. with uh with brexit not not hopefully to get too political (laughs) on the podcast but there's you know there's there's a sense that i think britain is 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 now trying to figure out where do we stand in the world what's our role and i do think that that does kind of bleed into the into the the profile and the support of the the england team and obviously the other home nations as well where it's like you know that suddenly it's it they're really really having to you know there's a there's a there's a nation's kind of expectation but also pride and also it's it's a lot of additional pressure and then obviously other other things have cropped up so you know i I very naively believed that the days of the soviet union as i was researching it were were long in the past and it was was all a sort of uh you know something we'd never really see the likes of again and then obviously we had the ukraine invasion that's that's brought those kind of the West versus East, and the, the, the those sort of Cold War tensions come simmering back. And as I mentioned before, 1953 was obviously the year that Queen Elizabeth II was coronated, and she she passed away just in the wake of the book coming out. So there was, wow. it, like you say, it's some of it's 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 a long time ago, and it, it feels like a, it, you, when when you're researching it, like Britain, you know, we had rationing and stuff like that, and it's it's just a completely <laughs> different. It's, it feels yeah. it's seventy years ago, but it feels it might be seven hundred years ago. It feels like completely alien to what we've got today. But then these things keep coming on, and it keeps reminding you that actually, you know, maybe not so much has changed. Maybe with you know, it's 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 still the same debates being had, and you know, it's. Uh, I'm not saying I'm glad that England didn't get uh, absolutely you know torn apart by France in the World Cup, but I'm sure if they had we'd be having the same conversations again. You know, it would be, yeah. who should be the manager? Do we need a foreign manager? Do we need, you know, how do we update our tactics? How do we get ahead of everyone rather than, you know, just, just kind of copying what's gone before and what's worked in the past and that kind of thing. So it's, like you say, it's, it's a long time ago, but it's also fascinating how these things kind of circle back and, and repeat and, and come again.
1: How interesting. So have you got any plans for a third book?
0: Uh, I mean, I don't think the, uh, the Nations League defeat to Hungary at Molyneux last year is, is quite as evocative yet. Maybe <laughs> in 70 years, that, that would be one. But no, at, at the moment, I'm I'm just taking some some time off from writing um, and obviously promoting the book. And uh, yeah, having, having a think about what I'll do next. You know, I went, when I finished the first book, I said, I'm, I don't want to do another football book. And then I did another football book. And my reaction after finishing this one was sort of, I don't really don't want to do another football book, certainly one about the nineteen fifties, but you know, maybe in a couple of years I'll be back on here talking about the 1958 World Cup or something like that, <laughs> uh, from an England perspective or so, something along those lines. So no, no plans at the moment, but I'm I'm sure I'll, you know, I'll start to get the uh, the urge to do something in, in the next few months. Yeah,
1: well, you'd be more than welcome to uh, to come back on. Uh the book is called Match of the Century, England-Hungary and the Game That Changed Football Forever. It's published through uh, the History Press uh, and I'm guessing it's it's available for all the all-usual good books bookstores and everywhere else So you get your books from, I guess.
0: I believe so. It's, it's certainly on Amazon and all of the uh, bookstores online and then I think it's in most Waterstones uh, up and down the country. So, yeah, okay. should, hopefully wherever you look, it will be.
1: Yeah. Well, no, I wish, wish you all the very best with it. Um, and if if people want to get in touch with you, are you, are you open to that?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the easiest way is on Twitter where I am at Matt J. Clough. Um, and yeah, if you read the book, loved it, hated it, uh, I'm always happy to, to hear from people who've, who've read it. So, uh, yeah, by all means, get in touch.
1: Great stuff. Well, Matt. Thank you very much for for taking the time to chat to us. Been been interesting. There's so much to to learn about this era of uh, English football and and this game. I'm sure in another seventy years, people will still be talking about this particular game.
0: Yeah, I I hope so. Like I say, maybe maybe not some of the nations league matches won't stand the same test of time, but I think this one will go on and, and continue to be to be studied and uh, yeah, used uh, as an example of where things can go horribly wrong for for England. Uh, hopefully, you know, there, it will be a reminder as, as England win our sort of fifth World Cup in a row, people will will revive this the memory of the match of the century to be, ah, oh, you weren't always that good. Uh, but maybe that's slightly wishful thinking. We shall see. Well we won't be here to find it out, I guess. <laughs>
1: Thanks to Matt there for his time. As we mentioned, the book, The Match of the Century, is available through all good bookstores, book providers, wherever you get your books from. And, of course, you can follow him on Twitter at Matt J Clough. Now, recently, I've been looking to add to my collection of England programmes, and when I was talking to Matt about doing this episode... I thought I'd look into getting a copy of this match programme. I saw one recently on eBay with a match ticket. It sold for £103. Perhaps I'll hang fire on this one and try and fill some of the more recent gaps that I have. Anyway, many thanks as always for listening. I hope you've enjoyed it. And with no games at the moment, I hope you can appreciate that content, it can be a little sparse. Um, Filling an episode with England players who have moved during this January transfer window uh, has proved to be a little tough, but I do hope to be speaking with some people of interest in the next few weeks for some future episodes, so stay subscribed and you won't miss it. I'm off to renew my travel club membership as I'm currently out of contract. Could go a little bit Bosman. Now, there's a uh, a reference that all of a sudden seems <laughs> incredibly dated. Uh, but until next time, take care of yourselves. Cheers.